Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. Recorded at the PW offices in New York City, I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and co-editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. And I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of The Beat at comicsbeat.com. And you can find us on Twitter at at PW Comics World. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons, I'm the podcast producer, and you can find us online on Tumblr at pwcomicsworld.tumblr.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to More to Come on iTunes, and on Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash pwcomicsworld. All right, this week on More to Come, Steve Ditko has died. Uh, the San Diego Comic-Con preview. Uh, we've got an Anime Expo report. Uh, we're going to talk about the Kirkman Mystery Comic and the New York Times Batman Spoiler, but first let's go right back to uh, really uh, what I've heard him call it one of the founding fathers of Marvel. Um, he was one of it's certainly along with the triumvirate of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. Uh, he was was really one of, as I put it in our obituary, one of the most influential. Of comics artists uh, to come out of Marvel in that period. Absolutely, Steve did go. You know, he was a. Uh, uh... Well, you know, there was a bit of a squabble between him and Jack Kirby as to who's the co-creator of yes. of uh, Spider-Man. Yeah. But certainly he, Ditko designed the character, mm. Was uh, although actually there was a little Jack Kirby sketch. Anyway, I'm digressing. Yes, but mm. Ditko was instrumental in the Spider-Man, in making right. him there the... There were really three co-creators, yes, let's be honest. Yes, and, mm, and yes. in Doctor Strange. And, uh, you know, uh, he was 90 years old. He walked away from Marvel in 1968 for many of the same reasons that a lot of Stan Lee's other co- collaborators walked away, is that they were just sick of Stan. Uh, Ditko took it very personally. And, uh, you know, he did work for Marvel again, actually. Uh, and uh, he worked for a lot of publishers after that. He did a lot of work. And he was making comics right up until the end. But... You know, he was called reclusive. I think that's... You know, I called him reclusive. Yeah, I know. I did too. I didn't call him a recluse. Yes, right. I mean, he definitely didn't like doing cons and didn't like doing shows. And, you know, he lived by this stringent Ayn Randian objectivist uh, yeah. philosophy, which um, really... Uh, you know, some said he destroyed all his artwork. Mm. Uh, others said that his sister had it. He does have a nephew who's also named oh. Steve Ditko, apparently. Oh, that's and, right. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm. I mean, he does have some family members. And he, uh, Robin Snyder, who is a longtime collaborator of Ditko's, and they were doing Kickstarters right up until the yeah. end. So, um, but, you I, know, his... Oh, go on, Calvin. No, I bought some. Of the, I bought some of those Ditko comics, Ditko Snyder edited comics. In fact, I've got them in a stack somewhere in the, in my office. Well, I mean, I, only thing I'm going to say is once again, as the old fart Marvel fan here, I grew up in the 1960s. Um, the the artists that I mentioned there were my gods of comics when I was 12 years old. Right. They these were my introduction into the world of comics. Uh, Marvel of those years of the mid 1960s. They completely transformed my whole notion of what a comic book would be. Those Marvel comics were completely transcended. And Spider-Man uh, and really maybe the Fantastic Four, for me, were the most uh, amazing comic books I had ever read. Uh, the way Ditko designed Spider-Man, the dialogue, which I, I guess was more Stan Lee's yeah. edition. People go back and forth on that. I mean... Uh, you know, I'm not going to debate it. Um, those comics and, and, and Steve Ditko's drawing, his design of the character, his art, the mood that he put on the page, 
And the athleticism and kinetic dynamism of how Spider-Man moved across the page, page, there really wasn't anything in comics like it. Right. Yeah. It completely mesmerized me, and all we did was search for Spider-Man comics like every month. Yeah. Well, he he was definitely a master of the bizarre, and 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 also the downtrodden. You know, Jeet here had uh, essay about uh, Ditko, and also comparing him to Kirby, and was talking about how Kirby really loved groups. You know, he excelled at groups like the Fantastic Four, the the Boy Commandos, and so on. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ditko was the cartoonist of the loner. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the 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 mole man, the vulture. I mean, yeah. all of these. And of course, Doctor Strange. Yeah, Doctor Strange. But I mean, all of these Spider-Man villains were mm-hmm. like like moody loners. You know, these men in undershirts, and you know, yeah. <laughs> who are driven to crime. And you know, here was this geeky teenager trying to stop them but yeah it was was also in his way for all that he was a friendly guy kind of a loner as far as his work went yeah absolutely yes absolutely and um you know just as far as who wrote what i you know it's not that hard to figure out ditko and kirby both wrote a lot of comics after they left marvel so you know do the math i i mean you could see what stan added and he added a lot but you Mm -hmm. could see what ditko and 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 kirby brought to the table too so you know i don't i don't i don't think that's uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of mysteries about it, but they, I don't, they yeah. all added a lot of stuff. Absolutely, it was just like the Beatles. You know what? Paul and John put out some awesome albums, and even George had a good song or two. But none of them were as good as the Beatles. Let's face uh, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I always saw Stanley as the the Marvel impresario. I mean, he kind of brought the hucksterism, the attention, the marketing. I mean, I I always assumed he had some impact on the dialogue. I mean, for me at the time, Marvel Comics had this sort of fake colloquial way of speaking that you just didn't hear written in other comics. The dialogue yeah. was, was peppy. It was funny. It was, it was genuinely funny. It was the, 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 the jokes. I mean, if you read a DC comic at the time and then I read a Marvel comic, I mean, it was obvious that there was something different going on yeah. at Marvel. And uh, so his contribution is real. I mean, I'll it let is. other people fight about yeah. what it but is. But anyway, we're here to talk about Steve Ditko right. today. That's well, true. But... And Steve Ditko really was the king of the heap. I mean, that's only to say that those those comics were about Steve Ditko. Now, Calvin, did you read any of his Mr. A comics? Uh, I have read Mr. A, absolutely. I have some of them at home. I haven't read them in a long time, but I, I would find them around the city in various places. And I didn't know about Mr. A until many, many years later as an adult. And... Uh, once again, they're mesmerizing in their own way. They're actually kind of frightening, frankly, uh-huh. because this is like the superhero from hell. I mean, he really is. Uh, I mean, he protects the weak, but he is like has. I mean, he makes no distinctions between anything except good and bad. And if he decides you're bad, you die. <laughs> <laughs> and he gives you a speech about it before he kills you. It's so, a comic book after all, Calvin. That's true. Um well, you know, I think definitely people talk about uh, Ditko's Ayn Randianism, but they don't necessarily always pay attention to the fact that the very nature of Ayn Randianism would... You might say that Stanley drove him into the arms of Ayn Rand. Um, oh, yeah. Because, because, you know, if you look at The Fountainhead, it's a story about, you know, creators having their work changed or having their credit stolen. And so I can see if you are a sensitive and somewhat curmudgeonly artist type who is having this very thing happen to you sure. at the time these books are coming out, that it would feel very powerful to the right personality. And I can see that in his case, 
that it would be a good fit and may have in a way helped him decide where he wanted to go going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I and mean, yeah, Stanley's definitely an objectivist nightmare. And you know, I, I, he, Ditko's a very complicated character. Um, uh, you know, he did not seek the spotlight and he hated that old work and he rejected just like Howard Rourke, you know, he'd rather burn, turn down the building, uh, his, of his greatest work if it was compromised. So he rejected his old Marvel work. However, he worked on all this new stuff and, um, you know, there was a lot of talk about people who violated his privacy. Uh, you know, he was listed in the New York phone book. Uh, he certainly, um, you know, I, like there was a, a Jonathan Ross and Neil Gaiman famously went and tried to, you know, make a documentary. He just didn't want to be interviewed. He didn't want to be on camera, but they did, um, you know, talk to him for an hour in the hallway. So I, I, I think secret, I, yeah, I met Steve Ditko once. Let me tell you, you know, mm. I mean, I met this, everybody met Steve Ditko, yeah. really. Mm. You know, the guy was definitely, you know, not afraid of people mm. in that way. And, uh, you know, I think he liked human contact. I, yeah, I think he just yeah. was maybe a normal person who didn't want to be famous. Yes. And well, I wouldn't call him normal either. I mean, he but, definitely, I mean, yeah, there's lots you of, know, a, yeah, a yeah. person who wants a, a normal level of human contact. Yes, exactly. Or yeah. at least is not averse to a certain level of human contact. Well, okay? I never met him, but I sure would have liked to. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, no great. We had an awesome conversation that was like, hi, this is Steve. Hi, I'm Heidi. Nice to meet you. That was it, you know. But I met Steve Ditko. Okay. You know. Um, well. But, um, anyway, listen, the people who are lauding him, there's stacks and stacks and stacks of work that he's put yeah. out. It's kind of crude and weird, mm. but maybe there are some gems in there. I did think, was there a story up on CBR about his return to Marvel? Which, really, this is a past point where I was reading um, superhero comics or or Ditko, and so it was actually kind of fascinating. I'd seen some of these comics, but didn't know much. What about were the them. ones that he worked on? Was oh, it like Rob? Uh, Captain Did... Universe, right, um, right, right, Machine Man, right. Um, yeah, yeah. It, the, I mean, you you look at the art, of course, you know it's Steve Ditko because right. you can't mistake it for anyone else. But I really knew almost nothing about them except hearing snatches over the years. So that it was an interesting piece, right? Well, uh, rest in peace, Mister Ditko. No one's bothering you now. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody is talking about the thing That's you did true. not want to be talked about, <laughs> yes. unfortunately. Yeah, it's true. All right. Well, uh, well let's, talk, let's talk about San Diego because it's next week and oh, we're going to be heading out there. I know. Go, yeah. Calvin, you're going. You had a scare. You thought you weren't going. No. Yeah, well, I had a little momentary hotel uh, uh, hiccup. But uh, we're back on track. Yep, hotel hiccup. Hotel hiccup uh, I know it well. Back on track. I know it well. So, yeah. But this year you've done a great piece called um, In a World of Too Many Cons, San Diego is King. Right. Yes. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to say about this year's San Diego we could get to a little bit. But, uh, yeah, I just I wrote the feature. I think I was working on it last time we did our podcast and uh, t- definitely took a week out of my life. But, um <laughs> It's quite a long article because there, there's quite a many. It's a long feature. We like these long, rambling features at BW. Anyway, I talked to a lot of people, and you know, this is a reality. Like we joke about it on here all the time, yeah. but you know, if you're a comics creator or a comics publisher, you're constantly being asked to come to these shows. Uh, how do you pick and choose? And I mean, there's so many different levels now, as we talk about here constantly. There's the mega shows, there's the local shows, there's the library shows, there's the literary comic shows, there's the celebrity shows, there's the autograph shows, there's the collectibles shows. You know, I mean, there's a, there's thousands. I have a list and it's thousands of there's events. There's a glut of comics conventions. Yes. There's shows every weekend 
from the spring on to December. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're, you're. And, you know, you, you, you look into the ways that it complicates the life of publishers, uh, the demands it puts on creators. Um, uh, I guess in some degree, for some of the big publishers, the worry that it brings to, uh, well, not so much the big publishers, big and small publishers, as uh, one of the one of your uh, sources say, uh, I think it was uh, uh, from Oni, uh, James Jones. You know, if they're behind a table selling books, they're not working on mm-hmm. scripts yeah. or drawing. Well, I think what Jim Lee had to say. You know, I talked to Jim, and, and um, you know, we talked for ten, fifteen minutes about this, and and you know, hearing his perspective on it was really interesting because mm-hmm. he obviously was one of the first really mm-hmm. huge superstars during his Image days, Marvel and Image days, and you know, now he's a publisher. And, you know, one of the things that people were talking about, very frankly, which is something that's been kind of uh, talked about a little bit, but I, you know, it's really coming out more into the open, is that a lot of comics creators are demanding appearance fees yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're not demanding the 100000 you know, $200,000 of, of an Avengers cast member, but, you know, they're, they're asking for four figures, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. uh, to come. And this is really changing the business in a lot of ways. And it's first, it's changing the con business, but it's also changing the publishing business. Because if someone can make all this money just going to shows, <laughs> you yeah. know, why wouldn't they? But as I think it was Jim and or Dan Didier who pointed out, it was like, you know, at some point, you do have to create something so that you have something to sign. Yes. So don't forget <laughs> yeah. about that. Yeah. So um, so you go into great detail with some great uh, conversations. And and also, um, you kind of approach the, so- the topic of uh, essentially a market shakeout. Yeah. Well, know? yeah. You know, I mean, we talk about bad cons all the time. And as I say, you know, when you read this, when a con is crap story, we laugh. But if you were caught up in it, it wasn't very mm-hmm. funny. You yeah. know, I mean, it really is not like you, people spend a lot of money and they they really look forward to this experience. You know, there's there's everybody says there's going to be a shakeout, but it's kind of like the pamphlets and the periodicals that we're talking about in our next topic. It's like, like you see little bits of it here and there, but there's really no sign that a gigantic shakeout is yeah. coming. Well, I mean, here's what I suspect is going to happen. It's like what happened in the tri-state area when New York Comic Con came in. Mm-hmm. And it sucked all the life out of Wizard World Philadelphia. Right. That um, I think that the smaller cons that don't have a lot of local artists to draw on, that don't have a lot to offer artists or creators, mm-hmm. are going to get smaller. They're just going to have fewer guests of note. And, you know, I think it's not so much that these cons will go away, they'll just get crappier. You know, it's interesting you say that, Kate, though, because a lot of people say they prefer medium-sized shows. No, I'm not talking the medium-sized mm-hmm. show. Yeah, you're talking about the little dinky I'm, ones? I'm, I'm talking about the ones that, like a medium-sized show that has a decent drawing area mm-hmm. of, right, of right, non-oversaturated right. stuff. A show that, you know, it may be the big con of Middle Ohio. But it's the best con of Mid-Ohio. Right, right, right. Well, there was show... a con called Mid-Ohio Con. Yeah. <laughs> right. That show will do okay. It right. won't yeah. be maybe big time, but it'll draw local creators from maybe three states around, and it'll mm-hmm. be fine. Right. But the show that would really like to be that con, but isn't quite as good, that show's going to get smaller mm-hmm. and crappier and crappier. Let me ask you this. What it's not going to go away. This? Uh, uh, that there's going to be um, a shakeout uh, in <clears throat> mostly on... 
the the superhero classic con mode. I don't see this on the festival side, on the comics on festival side. I don't see the same kind of... Well, I've got to be honest. I I don't see it. You're right. Because I think that attendance-wise, I think that they're fulfilling. But I I actually do see a lot of burnout among the people who put these shows Mm. on because they're not big money makers. You know, there was the Autoptic show. Mm. Uh, You know, I'm getting it mixed up, but at least one of them has gone on hiatus, Right. Um, there were a couple here in New York, King Con at right, one point. Right. There was a more literary right, that, that, oriented that, show, if I'm not mistaken. Eh, yeah. That wasn't a very uh, that was a really weird show. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, I, I mean I I'm I'm just bringing really up more for a point of discussion. Right, but I, I, I do the well, difference I, I, in the show. Because on the literary side, people much prefer these shows. The right. artists prefer them, the publishers prefer them, they're smaller, they're personal. Uh you can talk to the artists. It's a different vibe. Right. But, right. But even so well, for one thing, they're labors of love because they don't make a lot of money. So if you've got a bunch of them all in one area, people are going to burn out on doing it because they'll say to themselves, well, there is a con like this in this area. I know my audience will continue to be served. Maybe I'm going to take a step back. So I think you'll see that a bit. But also, I mean, while it's not the huge financial burnout, there's still a limited number of really good creators. And if you have an overserved market... It doesn't have a good enough drawing population. You know, those cons are going to get smaller and crappier, too. Right. It's going to go from, you know, uh, the best local creators from five states around to, like, what guys can you dig up within three towns around? Right. But, I, you know, it's become very, very competitive in smaller market. You know, even I have a friend who runs this show out in Long Island, Eternal Con. And even there, it's like now he was the first show to do this. And now there's two copycats. And it's gotten pretty cutthroat out there on the island. And, um, I mean, I, yeah, I agree, Kate. I mean, I think that some people are just going to get out. You know, there's a new con, uh, circuit that just started, Fandemic. That's kind of a spinoff of Wizard World. The guy who was with Wizard World left and started it. And, um, you know, the first one I heard was, was terrible. You know, it was a very lowly attendance, small attendance. And, uh, you know, they have one more show and then, uh, well, they're going to have to reassess, you know. And I do see, you know, another topic that comes in here is something we've talked about here on the show, which is maybe having some kind of better con bureau, you know, like some kind of convention organizers organization (laughs) where that because I think fans would prefer to have some kind of, you know, stamp of approval on that. But, you know, I don't know. It's very much in the theory, very theoretical. That would take a lot of work. I think we're going to we're going to weed out the shows the old fashioned way. There's going to be a bubble and a burst. Yeah, but yeah. I listen. I'll tell you, as someone who watches this market very closely, pretty much anybody can start up a con, and then they'll say they got Doctor Who coming and yeah. this and that, and you know, like Doctor Who's handlers might email them and say, uh, "Hey, we're not really coming," and then they don't take it down. But by then, they've sold, uh, you know, a couple hundred tickets. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think it's gonna burst. I think it's going to be like a balloon. That slowly deflates. Right. Whew. Right. Well, it's, yeah, it will stabilize at some point. But, um, yeah. But, you know, that doesn't change. The other part of my article is that San Diego is still the number one show. Yeah. And, but it is diminishing a bit this year. Like, things yeah, are kind I've of, heard. I would say it's normalizing. I wouldn't say it's getting smaller. Yeah. I'm just saying it, it got so big. <laughs> it just got so big. Well, it got so big, it seems like the news is, like, who's not going to be right. there. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, I mean, although that seemed to be around 
in many cases, as far as these big media properties, I mean, what Game of Thrones and I think there's some other big TV shows that aren't going to be Listen, there. Listen, my email's full of, there's so many TV shows going. It's yeah, like just so. Game of Thrones. At least HBO yeah. didn't go, you know, and they, I can understand why they didn't go. So, uh, But the other side of that, and part of that is really uh, connected to the next topic on the list, is that, uh, you know, manga publishers are finding themselves torn between Anime Expo, which was held, you know, what, two weeks ago, a week ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and going to San yeah, Diego. Yeah, you know, that's it. There's so, too many shows. Um, too many shows. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I were a manga publisher, I would go to Anime Expo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's would. well, that's what they're deciding to do, actually. Yeah. Because you know your audience wants you. Or they're taking one of the other strategies that came up in, in, um, in Heidi's article is they're exhibiting at Anime Expo and they're sending their authors mm-hmm. to do panels or Artist Alley at San Diego. Right. I mean, I think we're still, I mean, that Calvin and I are both still trying to solidify our schedules. I mean, you know, we're doing a ton of oh, yeah. interviews, you know, Calvin's making a note. He's got to remember to do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I put in. We should talk about our panels. I know, right? <laughs> you know, well, I put in, I couldn't resist, but I I, I think I'm going to have to not do it. But, you know, uh, the, 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 you, when you're on the press list, you get all these things. So now Migo is coming back and they brought Joe Namath. Comic-Con. I'm like, this is no place for a man with gimpy knees. I mean, come on. How is A 70-year-old man with gimpy knees. Well, give him him a a motorized... I guess guess he's got to do everything. Right. Well, before it's over, everyone's going to come to Comic-Con is the whole point. Well, that's true. Um, So, yeah. uh, Well, actually, yes. I'll be doing the panel. Let's talk about our panel. Yeah, we're doing the PW panel uh, on Friday, and that'll be the crowdfunding panel. And we've got a great lineup. Uh, Josh O'Neill from Beehive Books. Jeff Trexler writes about legal issues and crowdfunding. Uh, or we'll be talking about that on the panel. Uh, Camila Zhang, uh, the comics outreach comics outreach person at Kickstarter. Kel McDonald, uh, the cartoonist uh, who has run numerous Kickstarter campaigns, and I think that's everybody and me moderating. Right. Uh, and uh. then uh, on Sunday, I'm doing a how I got to here, which is a panel of people from other professions who are now doing comics, and it includes. The wonderful novelist Cory Doctorow, um, another wonderful no, uh, novelist Nalo Hopkinson, uh, and um, a an animator uh, Amanda Dalywal, uh, who has a really delightful graphic novel called Woman World. Right, right. Oh, that sounds like a fantastic yeah, so. Uh, panel. So, uh, really good ones, if yeah. I do say so myself. Uh, well, I'll have my annual comics journalism panel, seven p.m. on Thursday, as always. Uh, journalism, uh, chronicling the new comics canon. Uh, I'll have Albert Chang, formerly of Comic Book Resources. He just left, so he's going to tell us everything. Uh, Valerie Complex, the film reviewer and uh, writer. Uh, Rob McMonagall of Pound and Patter. Cat Overland of Roman Write About Comics. And uh, Fred Van Lente, uh, uh-huh. the writer, comics historian, and polymath. And novelist. And novelist, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll have a lot to talk about. We're just, you know, on this panel, I do it every year. I just get a yes. bunch of folks mm-hmm. together and we hobnob. Uh, then this is another panel the beat is presenting. I'm not on it, but I, I, uh, you know, we, one of my writers put it together and I, I think this is one of the best topics ever, uh, for a panel, uh, moms and motherhood in comics. And we have, uh, Wendy Brown from what women write about comics, Karen K. Burroughs, uh, who's a writer and media scholar, Emil Ferris, oh, uh, of a book fabulous. you might have heard of called yes. My Favorite Thing is yes. Monsters. The ubiquitous. Yes. Um, <laughs> Kat Staggs, the artist, uh, Kayla Sutton, uh, the writer, and Maggie Thompson. Yeah. And uh, Andrea Ayers is uh, a writer for The Beat. She's fantastic. Really, uh, I wish she got more attention. She's such a good writer. But anyway, she put this together 
uh, I helped her a little bit, but uh, you know, it, you rarely see this topic talked about at Comic Con panels, and um, you don't, you don't see, yeah. It. yeah. So uh, I hope, I hope someone goes checks that out, and then I will be on one more panel on Thursday at three thirty, which is the Statics Comics panel, which is the European oh, Comics Live yes. that's put on by Titan. I am moderating their panel, and we have a fantastic group of people who are on the panel, which I don't have in front of me, but uh, we're going to talk about something we talk about it here all the time but we're going to talk about it some more which is european comics and how they've come to the uh, u.s market and uh just in all different levels and statics i mean calvin you've written about it quite a bit Mm -hmm. and uh you know they just announced today this great book by philippe drio is coming out i mean Mm -hmm. they they have their books are fantastic so it's a pleasure oh one more thing i guess Mm. i am pretty busy so (laughs) saturday night from eight to nine uh i will be at the prism awards panel uh which yes which is the uh awards that are given to the best in lgbtqia plus queer comics i am one of the judges i'm very honored uh to be asked to be on the judging panel and some pretty fabulous comics and um you know this should be quite a happy party so come on to that please if you're at comic-con Sounds great. So yeah, uh, I, but are you, Calvin, are you going to the library at all? Uh, I'm going to try. Right. Um, one of the things of, of doing the podcast now—it's funny. Over the time of doing this podcast, my ex- how I experience Comic Con has changed dramatically because now I chase interviews. I don't go to panels so much. I chase interviews because I have interviews scheduled throughout almost every right. day. So, but I will find some time. I do want to get over there at least once. Right. Do it, right. Because it's not that far away from the yeah. convention center. It's just good to it's leave the hubbub. So. But, but uh, for those who may not know, there are five days of library programming that go on from morning to night uh, at the real state-of-the-art facility of the, the San Diego Central Library of Stone's Throw from the convention center. Now, so is this something you need a San Diego Comic-Con membership to go to? Uh, I think you do. I think your badge gets you in. I think so too. Yeah, I think I they think do, but um, but I think they they don't really check. So. Yeah, I don't. Either. It's at the library, so it's at a library. Libraries so are almost always you walk in. Yeah, you take a seat. You know, unless it's like jam. If it's jam packed, you can't get in. If right. it's not, they're not going to turn yeah. your way. So yeah, um, they uh, yeah, that that's a really fantastic. So I think I mentioned in passing last time uh, we did our podcast. I'm sorry, guys, my memory is shot. But uh, the other big change uh, is that uh, you have to sign up online for the exclusives and yes. autographs. So there's no, you know, the line will be cut, the sleeping in line out. And, um, you know, that's developed even more since then. It's like I said, autographs too. So, uh-huh. um, and people are absolutely, you know, people believe in determinism. Maybe a little uh, Steve Ditko there. Uh, you know, they believe that if they are right, righteous enough and walk the yes, path, yes. the eightfold right. path, that they will they get, suffer for they what will they get want. their yes. Funko Pop, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So, but now that it's become a completely randomized event, they are crestfallen. But, uh, I mean, I, 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 there's still a ton of TV shows. I mean, we could just fill up my, I mean, I have, uh, an increased staff this year, about 20 people, and, you know, they're not free for one minute. They all have interviews, panels, uh, roundtables, press conferences, nonstop for four days. You know, the con mm-hmm. it might, uh, you know, there's a fewer parties, uh, but nobody could get into those anyway. Well, so. that's, I saw the article of the beat. I was like, well, uh, I never get into these I know. parties. <laughs> 
So yeah, what the, who actually ha- gets into handful? That? Just like Hollywood douchebags. But you know, my Hollywood friends are telling me that it's become less of a priority for Hollywood uh, douchebags. So yeah. you know, it changes. You know, douchebags are yeah. so fickle. But you know something? Even that's. I think that's that's emblematic in many ways. I mean, Netflix will be at the con. Mm. Um, they are doing press for several of their shows, and you know, we're entering the streaming world. I mean, we've talked about it here again. You know, one of our threads we talked about is AT and T purchasing Time Warner, Disney purchasing Fox. Everybody, you know, the guy from AT and T went to HBO and said, "You guys got to get, you know, stream more. Yeah. <laughs> you got to yeah. ramp it up, boys." And, and so, so. You know, maybe the big giant movie studios lessening their presence is is really a sign of the media in general, not just yeah. Comic Con. Yeah, I have no response. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the you know the media at Comic Con, uh, you know, as I repeat repeatedly tell people, we're one of the few people that actually still cover Comic Con as a publishing mm-hmm. event. Yeah, so it's true. There you go. Mm-hmm. So, well, Cal- to be frank, I don't think the media never really covered. San Diego Comic Con as a publishing event. They couldn't be bothered until the big stars were there, and they still don't cover it right. as a publishing event. Yeah. Yeah. True. Because they don't really care about comics. Right. True. True. All true. Uh, so, Calvin, how was yes. Anime Expo? Well, according to Deb Aoki, our crack manga correspondent, uh, it was hot uh, in every way possible. Uh, apparently, skin blisteringly hot. Woo. Multiple days over 100 degrees. Uh, and yet they still had 110, over 110,000 anime and manga fans that turned out for it. Um, now, Deb feels that there's some shenanigans going on with the attendance because uh, the $110,000 actually is a slight decline from the numbers last year, which is about 115. But really, she says there were basically potentially hazardous, overcrowded events all throughout the place. Uh, really? And there's some sense among observers that uh, the organizers are sort of being cute with the numbers. Um, although I, I'm not sure how they would do that. The fire marshals are there. They can see the crowding. But um, it was packed. Uh, and it was a pack for, for a very good reason. Really, it looks like Anime Expo is really – it really has uh, uh, grown leaps and bounds and become really the premier showcase for all kinds of Asian pop uh, presentation and releases in North America, uh, they were let's see, there were they were anime premieres, particularly the first episode of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Uh, there was, I mean, My Hero Academia is, seems to be the hot manga title, and uh, there's anime for that that was showcased. Net, Netflix uh, showcased a new Ultraman animated series, and the list goes on and on. Square Enix was there with their VR manga, which they showcased, I think, a little while back at. Uh, New York Comic Con. So, um, yeah, um, the books were flying off the shelves. Um, let's see, I think uh, Ben Applegate, you know, for who kind of oversees the Kadansha line at Penguin Random House, uh, said it was one of their best, you know, anime expos ever. Uh, the same with from Viz. So, yeah, it's um, oh, light novels continue to be uh, a big have a big impact. On the you know, on the on the um, uh, uh, J-pop scene in in, in publishing, uh, with J Novel Club, which does uh, digital light novels, they're going print and with bookstore genera- uh, uh distribution. So uh, Anime Expo just continues to be really kind of um, a booming event, 
And because of that, which we've talked about before, uh, its presence in such close proximity to San Diego, you know, it's causing, uh, you know, a little dilemma among um, manga publishers. Yen Press, as you mentioned in your piece, Heidi, uh, will not exhibit this year. At San Diego. At San Diego, excuse me, not at San Diego. Um, and I think, see, I think Deb mentioned a few other presses. Uh, yeah, Kadancha and Vertical have um, panels at. Uh, San Diego, but they exhibit at Anime Expo. So, uh, but they also, uh, her piece also included, um, you know, comments by Eric Coe at Udon uh, that, you know, they are going to continue to do both. Uh, Comic-Con was very important to the growth of Udon at a certain point. And I think uh, our friend, friend of the show, Jane Louie, who does publicity over at Viz, also said as much about Viz. Right. Uh, well, you know, as mentioned in my piece, uh, anime shows are growing as well. Yeah. You know, they are not getting smaller. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Anime NYC is is coming again this fall. Yeah. And I mean, it, it looked like a good medium sized, well, a good little show that's going to be a good medium sized show yeah. in a year or yeah. two, I think. I don't think it'll be anywhere near New York Comic Con. I think New York Comic Con's existence keeps it from getting too large, but that's okay. Hmm. I think. I think it's going to be a con to reckon with in years to come as far as the anime circuit goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's Otakon on the East Coast and Boston Anime Con are big. But, you know, New York doesn't have a show right now. And And I think it'll be a good medium-sized show based in New York. Yeah, exactly. What was that that old manga show that used to be held in Uh, conjunction with New York Con? It got eaten by New York Comic Con. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it was actually really good to see to see an anime and manga show come back to New mm-hmm. York City. Yeah, and I mean, it, quite frankly, it was brought to you by the people who brought you New York Comic Con. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, it should be pointed out that show was actually put on by a person who used to be at New York Comic Con. Yeah, left has, field oh, is yeah, doing yeah, 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 right. yeah. Left field is doing it, but it's Peter so, Tartara who yeah. who put on you know was very instrumental at New York Comic Con. So. Anyway, mm-hmm. so uh, enough about cons. Let's talk about the week in periodical comics. Yes, yes, let's yes. do right. so. So, and what a week it was. So we yeah, it was, but we have like two kind of event, mm. two kind of things here that you know to me are super related, and one of them is so I'm going to mix them together. Go uh, for one it. is the uh, the Batrimony, the Batman <laughs> uh, Catwoman wedding issue, which came out. Was it last week? My my sense of time was, is so. It was uh, July first, I think. Well, it is only the twelfth, so I guess yeah. that was just a few short yeah. days ago. Uh, anyway, um, yeah. Uh, so and then you know, Robert Kirkman and Scott Gimple's, uh die, die, die. So basically, with with you have these just if if you if looking at both these books together doesn't show you that the direct sales market is really forked up and does it really work uh nothing will prove it to you so so you know what i'm actually going to start with batman because i know we all know about that so so we've been talking about batman yeah. catwoman getting married for quite a while yes. so the weekend before the book was to come out um the dc sent out review copies now i don't read them but i you know i download them so i save sure. them in case and so then on sunday there was a story in the new york times that was called you know it, i'm paraphrasing but it was called yeah. batman was going to get married but he didn't you know yeah, something like that yeah. <laughs> yeah something like that it's like a wedding yeah. annulled or the wedding batman's yeah. wedding doesn't go off as planned 
and so basically spoiled the whole issue where uh, Catwoman leads about the altar. So, you know, if you know Catwoman, I guess that was pretty predictable. But did they really (laughs) have to say it in the headline of the story? It just wasn't meant to be. It it just wasn't meant to be, Batman. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the first thing I thought of was the, the... uh, Sex in the City movie where Carrie and Big get married and the same thing happens, but then the movie goes on for another two hours and, and you know. Then they eventually get together. They do. I hate that show. So, you know, so like what I, she saw in Big, I don't get, but anyway. So the, the Times superhero comic book guy, George, yeah. Georgine Castines, is Castines, um, he did the story. He, he basically pulled off a spoiler, but a spoiler that he worked hand in hand with with DC Comics, right. and he didn't write the headline. Okay? No, no, no. So, Writers never so did. then, so then all hell broke loose. People are like, "How dare you spoil this?" <laughs> you know, Kate is literally yawning. She literally just yawned because we've heard it all so much. And so then, this is what was extraordinary to me, like. Uh, this actually got leaked that on the DC retailer board, John Cunningham, their sales and marketing guy, got on there and explained why they did it. And, and somebody copied and pasted it and sent it somewhere. And it was kind of like, this is, you know, it got out there, but it, it was planned Talk about it. to get out there. Uh, but I mean, that in itself is extraordinary that they felt so defensive that they had to purposely leak their own secret stuff. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so he said, we did it because you would do, you would have leaked it. And which is true. It's like every yeah. Monday, the retailers sure. get their books and they give them to Rich Johnston and then he writes about them and, or they give them to Reddit or they, you yeah. know, they get them up on these Minutemen sites where they have all the books for free and everybody starts talking about the minute they open those boxes. And that's just every week that happens. So, so DC did not want people going to the store dressed up. For a wedding, which people were planning to do, and then finding out that they didn't get married and being really sad. They wanted people to know ahead. They they wanted they wanted the people who were hardcore to know ahead of time so they didn't freak out. Well, right. They they didn't want you know. Oh, you promised us a wedding. Well, yeah, they would have gotten it. Too. I'm curious, how many of us? Well, just in this room really believed that they were actually going to be married. Well, I mean... I didn't I, really give a crap, I mean, to be Well, I didn't either, but I just figured that they would find some way that it wouldn't happen. Well, because okay. Because that's what comics do. Comics sometimes do something else. Comics sometimes do a thing where they let the characters be married for a very short yes. time, like a year, before something magical happens and they're not together. That Sam and Diane. So, I mean, I think people, I think some people happen to be very invested in the relationship as fans tend to do in relationships that have gone on a long time in comics. Yeah. And I think some hardcore Catwoman Batman fans would have shown up in wedding outfits. Oh, there were totally people yeah. planning to do Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's, that's absolutely you know, a fact. Absolutely would be completely psyched. And those fans would be very disappointed because they thought, I mean, they knew it wouldn't last forever, but maybe they thought they'd get, I don't know, a few issues of them together or something. So, I mean, I, I can see it. I can see it. Well, because I, I mean, they let Storm and Black Panther be married for like a year before they broke yeah, them up. I mean, it happens. Yeah. Well, I I would like to draw your attention to the my site, the Beat, once again, and uh, a, a, a column that was written by Brandon Schatz, Dana Colablanc, who run a store called uh, Variant Worlds in uh, Edmonton. It's called It's Always the End of the World Somewhere, and he talks about uh, this. And, you know, he is like a newer kind of retailer, and he kind of nails it. Uh, he just says, 
Oh, this is such a long quote. I'm not going to read it. It says, by the spoiler of it all, there's the idea that retailers are banking on this wedding going through. When the news came out <laughs> that the wedding wouldn't go as planned, wow, were folks mad. I won't get into what was said in the secret retailers forums because, well, it should stay there. But if you look around the public parts, you'll see a lot of angry messages from folks wondering how they're supposed to sell this comic they ordered. And really, I can't believe this needs to be said to folks who have been through how many event cycles and bait <laughs> and switches. But these things never work out. It might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. But at some point, a superhero wedding or status quo is going to be rendered moot. We'll go back to the status quo. People will know Matt Marduk is Daredevil, and then they won't. Ba- Bruce Banner will be dead, and then he won't. Whoa. We were promised a wedding. Well, there was a wedding, but there wasn't a marriage, and we were never promised a marriage. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that it counts as a wedding if the bride never shows right, up. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that, uh, yes, it is a wedding. If everybody came and went, there was a wedding, but there was no marriage. He's right. But I, you know, so now... Let's talk about Robert Kirkman. Yeah. So, so obviously, much with Batrimony, <laughs> well, the book is out. Yeah, you know, I haven't seen but it, it's though. like, yeah. like uh, with Batrimony, DC was all in on the cycle of the news cycle, which involves final letter cu- or cutoffs and you know variant covers and uh, the weekend before, like retailer promo and public promo, all this different stuff. So Robert Kirkman is the one guy with enough money to do it the other way. So he pulled a Beyonce and, yeah. uh, this week, uh, so, so again, uh, Brandon, uh, uh, my retailer correspondent says that on his invoice this week, it said special thank you promo with poster and 25 copies. So basically, Robert Kirkman launched a book in January called Oblivion Song, number one. And that, he went all out. They had a press conference. They had, they sent us the first four issues free to read. They did embargoed news stories. They did interviews. They went all out. And so this secret book was sent out in the same number of copies that you ordered of Oblivion Song. A retailer would get free, didn't have to pay for them copies of a new surprise book called Die, Die, Die that Kirkman and Scott Gimple, uh, who works on The Walking Dead, and uh, the artist is Chris Burnham, who's awesome. So they've been working on this book all along, and they just launched it. Bam, they dropped it. Now, just to prove that John Cunningham was right, the minute the retailer, they tried to be like Beyonce, where Beyonce just says at midnight, hey, my album's out. Go get it on Spotify. Harder to do with comics. So when the retailers opened their bags, boxes on Monday, the first thing they did was go and say, hey, I got this Robert Kirkman book. Isn't that cool? It's up on Bleeding Cool. It was, uh, you know, on Twitter. Everybody got excited about it. And it didn't become available until yet, as we're recording this yesterday, Wednesday. So we'll see. It's a very violent book. A lot of people are like, I don't need more Robert Kirkman violence. But, you know, so only Robert Kirkman would have the money to ship free this book. So which is going to work out better? Batch your money? You know, Brandon says that for all the retailers who are like, no one's going to want to buy this book after it got spoiled, it's actually selling really well. Of course it is. It's been talked about in the New York Times. Every nerd in, in the country is walking around looking for this issue, if for no other reason than they can buy it and complain about it. <laughs> so... Well, the buy it to complain about it market is highly exaggerated. <laughs> I got to quote you on that. Yeah, yes, I, uh, but I'll tell you, I don't really think that this is going to hurt the sales of that comic at all. Because I think the read it to complain about it people do exactly what I do when I read something to complain about it. They go to the comic <laughs> store, they flip through two pages, they say, "What garbage," and then they buy something else. 
Yeah. This isn't know. a library, you know. No, yeah, if you yeah. don't buy the whole book, you don't like, you know, you look at it to see, is this a product yeah. that I wish to purchase? And the answer is no. And then you purchase a different product. But I, I think you're right. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I, I, I've encountered a lot of people who buy the books that they complain about, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know listen, everybody in the world that buys comics. Who does, who do people complain about more than any other publisher? I don't know. Flip DC? a coin, Marvel or DC? They, they're both. Which is like they complain week? about them both. I, I don't know. I mean, Mar- DC's been getting the, but it's Marvel week in and week out. Complaining. Yeah, Marvel's been getting the short right. of the stick lately. Yeah. Which comic yeah. company sells more copies month in and month out? Well, that's Marvel, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. let me. Uh, I made the mistake of flying on Norwegian Air. What? It ended badly. What? I love Norwegian. What? Well, well uh, basically, they're uh, half of their seven eighty uh, sevens are out of service. Oh, and so they are borrowing planes from a really, really crappy Spanish airline. Uh, and if you get that airline, your plane will probably not work. Oh, yeah, very well. Spanish airlines. No, no, no. But Ooh. they don't tell you that. You think you're booking yeah, Norwegian gross. anyway. So, uh, in defense of themselves getting the most complaints of any airline in Scandinavia, their argument was, we are the largest airline in Scandinavia, therefore, we will get the most complaints. So, because, you know, the most customers, the most complaints. That's true. So, you so, just own it. Is that what yeah. it is? Yeah, so, <laughs> so arguably, it. Marvel could make the argument, well, we get the most complaints because we have the most readers to complain about us. <laughs> Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, I just get yeah, That's a good point, it. Kate. That's it. You own it. Own it. it. Yeah. All yeah. right. On that note, shall we move on to the briefs? Well, on that note, actually, Calvin, we have a stargazing feature. And we are currently at 45 minutes. And so if we want to fit in stargazing, I think we need to end today's live show now. Okay, well, we're good because we actually talk about four titles this week. All right, this week four wonderful wow. titles. Or because we missed June. So uh, so Meg Limke will be uh, joining us to, to talk about uh, uh, the start reviews in, in Publishers Weekly. And we're back with another episode of Stargazing. And for those of you who haven't heard the previous shows, uh, that's where me, Calvin Reed, senior news editor of Publishers Weekly and co-editor of, of PW Comics World, uh, PW's online uh, comics coverage, I talk with Meg Lemke, PW's graphic novels review editor, about the uh, starred reviews in either in recent or upcoming issues. So uh, welcome back to Stargazing, Meg. Hello, comics fans. So I love doing this section of the podcast because it's a chance to focus on exceptional books yes and we have four to talk about today we usually talk about three but we missed june <laughs> yes there you go i was Stuff away happens. for the american library association oh, yeah. so you've got was, a good good excuse yeah which was a blast yes yeah. mm. so i've heard and side. graphic novel we talked about it on uh, the previous podcast because heidi was there as, mm-hmm. as well uh, and we know it's the, the ALA is a hotbed of interesting graphic and novels. And you should be there next year, right, Kevin? One of these, yes, I should be, because I'm, now I'm on the board of the Freedom to Read, uh, uh, the board of trustees of the Freedom to Read Committee, so I should be traveling to more ALA meetings in the future. Yeah, yay librarians. Yes, absolutely. So, so what you got for us? So let's start with um, going forward to the publication date. So publishing this month 
is Collexit Volume 1 from Black Mask Studios. And the creators are Matteo Pizzolo and Amon K. Naupen. Let's see, do you know the pronunciation? Uh, it, it, yours is as good as mine. Uh, so, uh, Amon K. Naupen. No, Naupen, thank yeah. you. Um, this is the first volume, so it's what mm-hmm. PW is getting to it in the trade edition, but mm-hmm. it came with a lot of praise and interest for uh-huh. the ongoing series. It's a political um, sci-fi work that imagines that California is seceding from the United States under a thinly veiled Donald Trump. Fact or fantasy? <laughs> yeah. So really, since the outset of this ongoing series, which is now in its first volume this month, the situation that it describes has become more and more terrifyingly real as yeah. it looks at issues around um, California becoming a sanctuary state because of um, persecution of immigrants. Mm-hmm. So our reviewer clearly saw the the profound relevance of this work um it's very well done in the genre in particular i feel like some of what appealed to me was the very careful and thoughtful design of backgrounds there's a lot of hmm. really perfect spot on pieces of graffiti you know so much information mm-hmm. is carried in the the gorgeous rich coloring hmm. and details of the backgrounds in this book well i haven't read it but i intend to i did read the pw review mm-hmm. Uh, and it really does eerily describe, um, you know, a social situation that looks very much like what we're facing today. So, uh, sounds really interesting. And it's an ongoing series, so you can both get the volume and then start picking up the floppies. Yeah. If you're that kind of reader, depends a lot. Um, so moving on to another dark, a lot of my, <laughs> I really like to pick a lot of dark books. We have three dark books <laughs> and we have a very, sweet, cheerful book at the end. Okay, there you go. Um, We'll we'll leave you with a good (laughs) feeling. (laughs) So out this September, you can get your pre-orders in uh, now, is Home After Dark by David Small from Live Right, which is an imprint of Norton. And David Small is the creator of Stitches, which was a bestseller about 10 years ago. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's Um, almost exactly 10 years. And Stitches was a memoir. And this is a piece of fiction, mm-hmm. but it has similar territory looking at, you know, difficult upbringing and toxic masculinity um, and how to find oneself yeah. as a young boy coming of age um, in a dark, you know, dark sort of 50s, sorry, 60s America. I think the review is also really well written. Um The men and boys in Russell's life are absent, monstrous, victimized, or all of the above. It has a beautiful turn in the end, which I don't want to spoil too much, but there's a sense in which he has this uh, particular relationship with his landlords, who are Chinese-American immigrants, that he doesn't get from his father. And there's a really Mm -hmm. kind of beautiful way in which we look at the way community can come to fill in the missing relationships in our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, You could speak also to Small's very striking and specific art style. He has a very... Um, kind of sketchy, fine yeah. line. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, his drawing sort of de- defines almost the psychological outlines mm-hmm. of these characters. They're 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 really sort of uh, attenuated and um, roughly drawn. Though he, you know, he's obviously a very polished artist. I mean, he's really actually a children's illustrator, a very mm-hmm. prominent ch- children's illustrator. Um, but really, uh, the things that you said about the book really are true. I was lucky enough to have him on my panel at Book Expo, 
and he talked a bit about the book, and it really is layer upon layer of social dysfunction. Uh, now that said, this is a book that that it does have light at the end of the tunnel, mm-hmm. and uh, the relationship that um, he actually tries to escape from from this community. Actually, they won't let. They sort of don't let him go, mm-hmm. and so there's some resolution in that. But really, uh, as he described it himself, and as you said, it really is a sketching in of kind of the development of American toxic masculinity, kind of set in a certain period of time, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of what you know we're all up against. You know, so uh, it's a it's a very powerful book, uh, much in the same way that Stitches, his earlier graphic novel, was really moving work. This is on our uh, fall announcements top ten list as well, so it's it's been mm-hmm. one of the books yes, that it is. W is mm-hmm. seeing as a real potential breakout title. Yeah. So I want to talk about Bad Friends by Anko, who is a Korean creator. Mm-hmm. This is a drawn and quarterly title. I love this book. It caught me off guard. I didn't know Anko's work, and I get okay. the sense that Anko is. Either this was a debut also in Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly this is the first work that I found published in the U.S. We should maybe fact check that, but that's what I... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the the book is about the teenage years of a young Korean girl who is in with a bad crowd, you know, according to her parents. <laughs> but she has a hor- she's a hard home life. She's um, beaten repeatedly by her father. And at school, they mm. routinely strike the children. It's a 90s era South Korea portrait however her friends have a worse home life so in some ways yeah. it's she's coming into this milieu as the child who has stability even though um, she's facing child abuse in her home she has at least a, a home to be at whereas yeah. her other friend gets kicked out and it traces them you know wandering um Gangnam, the district that Mm -hmm. is popularized by the K-pop song, uh, as as young teenagers, including a period they run away for a period Mm. of time, they briefly become hostesses in a hostess bar, and uh, they have these like opa boyfriends who are Mm. older men, Mm. and it's reminiscent of a lot of uh, actually American stories from that period. If you think about like uh, classic stories of you know teenage runaways in San Francisco, Mm. um, cultural shifts in a particular period where the they're seen as so different and so punk from their parents and the parents struggling and responding violently to that cultural difference. The art is really, is this monotone world and shadowy and she has these lovely pullback scenes where the characters are alone and you see the, the environment in Korea. Mm. I mean, it's such, it's such a like, it captures the period, and for a lot of Americans, it's going to be something that they don't have any understanding of previously. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a real introduction to a certain period in Korean, South Korean um, history. I, it's really a fantastic book and and a discovery. I think it's something that people won't have won't have necessarily picked up. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with her at all. I haven't read the book. I have mm-hmm. read the PW review, and yeah, I'm looking forward to taking a look at it myself. And then. Finally, a book that both Calvin and I have read (laughs) and are super excited about and coming out in November. So this is a real peek into the future. But uh, the author, the creator, Rina Ayuyang, is appearing at the Brooklyn Book Festival and I'm sure other places this Mm -hmm. fall. No doubt. Blame this on the boogie. (laughs) Ayuyang is not only the creator of this book and a prior book, Whirlwind Wonderland. She is the publisher of Yam 
Press. Yeah, which I've heard of well, yeah. a little bit about. Yen it's Press, a yeah. lovely small press, mm-hmm. and they publish a handful of authors. So you may have seen Mina behind the table at different book fairs, mm-hmm. and not really. She was also a creator. This is drawn in quarterly as mm-hmm. well. And um, she is writing her memoir about growing up as a Filipina-American mm-hmm. in uh, Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh. It has a very strong sense of place. Yes, it does. <laughs> And, and I used to live in Pittsburgh, oh, so did it's you? even better. Yes, many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Another episode in my life, but go on. So it's, it's really about growing up in this supportive, tight-knit family, her experiences with prejudice growing up mm. in America, and how all of her life she's connected to musicals. So mm. from the way her family you know, would get around the record player and yeah. replay popular musicals from the period to uh, in her adulthood she has an obsession with dancing with the stars and she's done um, mm. some web pieces on this before so mm. I really it was really familiar to me because she's hilarious yeah. she has this great sense and love of pop culture but you know this actually isn't mentioned in the review but an obvious comparison is Linda Berry's work you know particularly mm-hmm. her early work sure. um, Linda Berry is also Filipina or, or I think could yeah, be actually I didn't know that uh, yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Um, this She's, uh, Rina is joyful. You know, she, mm. there's actually a joke in the beginning where she says, like, behind these doors, there's a dark history. And then she was like, no, it's just messy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a wonderful vibe to this book. Uh, and while she does sort of uh, recount some episodes of bullying mm-hmm. and really, um, you know, uh, social conflict, um, being an immigrant, in some ways, this is a classic story of immigration. Uh, of using uh, pop culture uh, as a tool to kind of create another different kind of American. Mm. Um, uh, it really is, um, you know, while there are some, you know, she does have her problems. It really is, to you know, from uh, in my reading of the book, it really is, uh, it gives you a glimpse into really kind of what America has always done, how America has accepted new immigrants, how immigrants have made Americanness their own without giving up you know, some sense of where they came from. It's really kind of the best, you know, of what the American experience it offers in many ways. I mean, I think what's really fascinating about Rena is she does not shy away from talking about difficult topics. No, not at all. Um, but she's so delightful and yeah. she takes such pleasure in the world that yeah. it's contagious. So she has mm-hmm. this incredible use of color, which helps to enliven yes, any scene. Mm-hmm. Um, she uses what looks like colored pencils. That's what it looks like, yeah. But the drawing is really terrific, you know, uh, you know, very, very gestural. I mean, so-called naive, uh, but really, uh, and, and actually, I would have to say her layouts are incredibly mm-hmm. uh, innovative. I mean, she doesn't use, uh, you know, a standard grid of mm-hmm. any kind. I mean, she really, every drawing sort of flow, flows into the next one. And the color is, in, in some ways, I guess, and, and this may be stereotyping, but it, it, it sort of connects to it with a sense of Filipino color. Yes. What little yeah. I know of Filipino coloring. <laughs> right. So everything is colorful. You get the sense yes, of it's the, really, uh, of the really food. delightful. There's a lot of, mm-hmm. of pieces about yeah. food and family, and yeah. there's a density. There's just like a wonderful um, early page where they're having a family party, and she's a little girl, and she mm. can't like figure out which auntie she's supposed to get. And there's just mm. this, like, you know, you get a sense of how um, like packed and dense and alive her upbringing was and yeah. how much that influenced her as a creator. And that's a good way to describe her pages, too. Yes. Packed and dense and alive. Yeah. <laughs> I really love this book. It's a terrific book. And on that note, um, thanks, Meg, for introducing us to uh, four new great titles. Thanks, everyone. I'll be back in August. See ya. 
Wow, that was great. And now there will be... More... To... Come. That was slick.